Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Hi, this is Stephen Liu from Georgetown University. In this episode, we continue our series discussing new FDA approvals in lung cancer. On January 26, 2023, the US FDA granted approval of pembrolizumab, an anti-PD-1 antibody, as an adjuvant therapy for patients with resected non-small cell lung cancer. This was based on the randomized phase three Keynote 091 or PEARLS trial. To provide some perspective on this approval, I'm joined by two thoracic medical oncologists with extensive expertise in this space among the global leaders really in that perioperative space. First, Dr. Jamie Chaft, an associate attending at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where she is the director of early stage lung cancer research. She's chair of the adjuvant nivolumab trial within the Alchemist program and heavily involved in perioperative systemic therapy studies. Jamie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We're also joined by Dr. Mary O'Brien, professor and consultant medical oncologist at the Royal Marsden in Surrey, head of the lung unit and past chair of the EORTC lung cancer group. She was one of the initiators, co-principal investigator and contributors on the Keynote 091 trial. Mary, thanks for joining us today. Hi. Let's start by reviewing the data that led to this FDA approval of adjuvant pembrolizumab for non-small cell lung cancer. Mary, can you describe briefly the study design and the overall results for our listeners? Yeah. So this trial was initially developed as an academic collaboration between the EORTC and ETOP, two European uh, academic groups, and later sponsored and taken up and supported and extended to other countries, including Japan, by MSD. So the data at the time of conception of the trial was on the use of immunotherapies in advanced disease, but clearly was showing a positive benefit of this treatment in most situations. And indeed, it was that that um, we had the courage to take the leap into the adjuvant setting. Now, the desire for a biomarker was very strong at the time, both in advanced disease and, of course, in the adjuvant setting, and PDL1 was certainly beginning to fit the bill. The data in the early stage surgically resected disease was still, and at the time, based on retrospective uh, surgical tumor banks where these blocks were pulled out and had an assessment of PDL1 done by immunohistochemistry in a non-controlled way and by various antibodies. And these 11 retrospective studies were all put together, a meta-analysis published, and they suggested that PDL1 was actually a prognostic factor in this situation and that high PDL1 was a negative prognostic factor. Um, the, the groups in advanced disease also seem to be pointing this way that this high PDL1 was perhaps the, the key to these treatments. So the trial was therefore designed on the background that perhaps greater than 50% PDL1 was the key. But nevertheless, it had a very simple statistical structure of a co-primary endpoint, disease-free survival. In both the PDL1 high, i.e., greater than 50%, and overall uh, disease free survival, with success declared on the positivity of one of these two co endpoints. There was no hierarchical testing, but there were, of course, secondary endpoints. 
It's important to remember that Empire 010 had a more complex hierarchical statistical approach with different analysis being triggered on the positivity of subgroups, including PDL1 expression and stage. And indeed, they did rush to the FDA on the positivity of one of their secondary endpoints, and that gives the lead into the market. Now, Pearls then was a randomized phase three study. Uh, it was um, um, a placebo controlled, unlike Empower 010, stratified for three cuts in PDL1, and it extended uh, the patient population into the much earlier stage of stage 1B, node negative greater than four uh, centimeters. And it's stratified for the use of adjuvant chemotherapy. Patients not having adjuvant chemotherapy could go in. So this study has been published in the Lancet Oncology, presented at ESMO at the virtual meeting in March and again in September. And last year at ASCO, I presented the poster. And it's also been to a Japanese surgical meeting. Thanks, Mary. You know, Jamie, this was a positive trial, uh, well-designed, phase three, placebo-controlled, and that led to its FDA approval. It's hard to discuss the results without looking at some of these subset data. You know, we learned largely from early keynote trials in stage four non-small cell lung cancer that immunotherapy seems to provide greater benefit to patients whose tumors highly express PDL1. Can you speak to, to those PDL1 subset data that Mary were alluding to in keynote 091? So, sure. So Keynote 091 really, I, I would say, shook the field up a bit. Um, the subsets are very different from expectations, uh, and the data are certainly outliers compared to nearly all studies in Stage 4, as well as the Empower 010 adjuvant study. So there is a clear benefit in all comers in 091 or PEARLS that PEMBRO is better than placebo after standard of care therapy. And this is stage 1B greater than 4 centimeters through resected stage 3. The subset hazard ratios were very well done. They're adjusted here for histology and smoking set. However, the subsets performed best in those tumors that had low PDL1 expression. So in this study, it was 1 to 49%. As Mary mentioned earlier, there were three strata pre-specified in this study. And interestingly, those with PDL1 high disease, the subset that we would anticipate to do the best did the worst. The hazard ratio was 0.8 and the confidence interval crossed unity. The PDL1 negative subset did better than the PDL1 high, also something completely counterintuitive to those of us who have reviewed data. Uh, and that confidence interval also crossed unity. However, the number was better. So to me, this is confusing. Uh, is it a statistical anomaly or something biological? I think we have two upcoming studies to help us sort this all out, but it's certainly different than expected. Um, and I think will lead to a lot of dilemmas in the clinic. Yeah, this has definitely been topic of a lot of conversation, trying to wrap our heads around this. Mary, what do you make of the subset data in this trial? Okay. So uh, the primary over, uh, the primary endpoint was disease-free survival for the overall population, and it was positive. The baseline data was very well balanced. There was an equal number who did not get chemotherapy, for example, 14% in each group. There was an equal number in each group, control placebo versus PEMBRO with stage 1B disease. For example, it was 14% in each. But for me, the interesting subgroup comments are, number one, 
the no chemotherapy group did not appear to benefit, while even one to two courses of uh, adjuvant chemotherapy got the benefit. So that's important in practice for me. Now, a lot of focus is on the PDL1 greater than 50% underperformance in this trial. And yet, if you look carefully at this group, it actually overperformed in terms of outcome compared to the control group. So we're looking at a median disease-free survival in PDL1 high of 36%, 36 months in the control group, which is really not a bad prognostic group as we started off thinking. And in the PEMBRO group, this increased to 54%. But at the point of cutoff, the curves had come together. So we do expect with longer follow-up that that separation will continue. But in fact, for our trial, the premise that we started with that PDL1 high is a bad prognostic group did not hold up. And therefore, that subgroup actually is underpowered in terms of what their baseline was and what number would have needed to be included to show this benefit. So I think we mustn't um, overread this at this early point in a subgroup that is overperforming. And this to me is the first study that's actually turning it the head on this PDL1 place in early disease compared to advanced disease. My other point on the subgroups is the less than 1% PDL1, as you've pointed out, Jamie, also did well, unexpectedly well compared to the ATISO data. But it is a very, uh, it's a good well in that the hazard ratio is 0.78. The confidence interval just touches over one. It's 0.58 to 1.03. It just goes over it. And therefore, this very low PDL1 subgroup is certainly not to be excluded as they're getting a, a benefit as well. And I can make the same comment on the stage 1B. So, therefore, overall, we have to look at this study as giving us new data, a new way of thinking about thing, ex things, extending the potential benefit to many more patients. Well said. Certainly, this would expand the benefit uh, of adjuvant immunotherapy. And you know the, the data are, are very clear in that sense. But you know, we've mentioned a few times uh, a different trial, and that sort of um, maybe shows uh, some things are a little different. Jamie, we've talked a few times about the phase three Empower 010 study. And you know interpreting the PEARLS data in a vacuum, I think would be a little bit easier. But in the context of an existing approval, we have to reconcile these two studies that are a little different. The Empower 010 study led to the FDA approval of adjuvant atezolizumab, as Mary had mentioned. This was for patients with resected stage 2-3 non-small cell cancer, the PDL one of at least 1%. Similar patient population, but a lot of key differences in design and results. We've mentioned a few. Jamie, do you think you could give our listeners a, a brief overview of that for, for context? We'll start with the Empower 010 differences in uh, study design. Those main differences include mandated adjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy. Now, patients didn't have to complete four cycles, but they did have to be fit enough to receive cisplatin. The study was also not placebo-controlled. As Mary pointed out, there was a complicated hierarchical statistical design based on pdl one expression and stage. 
Now, the published data show a disease-free survival advantage in stages two and three, irrespective of PDL one however, with a very modest hazard ratio of 0.79 for all comers there. In those that have PDL one expression in their tumors, stages two and three, the hazard ratio is pretty impressive, 0.66. When you include stage 1B greater than 4 centimeters, as was included in the PEARL study, the hazard ratio is not as impressive, and this subset was not ultimately submitted for approval in the United States. Now, I think what is most important to bring up in the, in the empowered data, um, and very different than the PEARL study, is that clearly the benefit in the FDA-approved population was driven by those with high pd one expression in their tumors. The hazard ratio in the PDL1 greater than 50% subset was 0.43. Now, this data was not a pre-planned subset analysis, but it really makes us think about what to do in with this data for low expression. Now, this is why I started by saying that the Pearls study has really shaken us up and, and left us with a clinical dilemma in, in our day-to-day discussions. And indeed, uh, very well said. You know, Mary, the the Empower 010 PDL1 subset data did align a bit more with what we've seen in metastatic lung cancer. I was a little more palatable, but you, you bring up some interesting points, and one wonders if there's a bit of confirmation bias. Mary, is there an explanation for the difference between these two data sets with regard to PDL1 trends? Yeah, so I actually think it's a kind of an evolution of thought. It's very interesting. Um I think, uh, so Empower didn't use a placebo, but, um, you know, it's a nice trial as well. Uh, And when they went, as I repeat, with a positive secondary endpoint to the FDA, they were first there and they actually produced results that everybody was expecting. And I think the FDA went along with this. Uh, here it was. Uh, it, they were the first, and um, they were showing exactly what advanced disease we would predict. And uh, this is good. Now, Harold has certainly thrown all this on his head. And sorry for repeating that. But um, I think we now have a broad enough experience and maturity to think about things slightly different. And we're actually seeing differences in advanced disease and adjuvant disease in other tumor settings with immunotherapy treatments. And I think for lung now, we should say that advanced disease and early disease could certainly be driven by different biological events. We all have patients with lung cancer who have heterogeneous PDL1 expression. Um, we have one bit of the tumor is zero and another bit is 100%. And indeed, we know that for mutation expression, that things keep changing and we have to keep biopsying until we get a target. So I do think we um, are not going to pigeonhole everything into one uh, biological pathway that was de- developed in advanced disease and thinking that early disease which is also heterogeneous, will follow the same pattern. I think we can safely say that PDL1 is not a great biomarker. Um, it mightn't even be a good biomarker in early stage disease. And I'm not even going to get into the different antibodies that were used for the different trials and the repeat antibodies and what is used out in the world in practice. And I think the FDA considered this all together. 
So, um, and people will use the data. And this is what we've got to be very careful. Funders will use this data to support their case on service delivery and most of all, cost saving. But we, the doctors, are the patient's advocates. So I actually like the way the FDA has approved this, what I would call a clean, nicely designed study that set out to ask a question, and here is the answer. They seem to have considered the whole PDL1 issue as impossible to sort out. The PDL1 story is not enough. And I think, as they said in their wording, we must move on now and not deprive patients of potential meaning survival gains, but focus on something new now on the toxicity, on the patient-related outcomes, and therefore the duration, the dose, the scheduling of immune therapy must now be our focus, rather than trying to dig deeper into this limited data we have now. And don't forget, we haven't even got the translational readouts of all these studies on many different things, including our common driver mutations. And I think we have to just go with what the FDA approved. And I'm sure an awful lot of thought went into this conclusion and this approval. Um, but for me, it's a clean answer to a clean trial that asked a question, followed one endpoint at a report time. And here's the result. Well, very, very well said, Mary. You know, we do want to see more translational outcomes. We want to see more follow-up. We'll have other studies read out. So we're going to learn more in that space. But as of now, acknowledging that you know our opinions and our outlook evolves over time, as of today, if you don't mind me asking, Jamie, what, what's your current recommendation for patients with completely resected stage two or three lung cancer, driver negative, PDL one high? What would you give now? Well, thanks for throwing me the easy question. I'd argue that this is the most straightforward population in the adjuvant setting uh, today, one which we have good data for from the Empower study and good logic for from the all of the data in some from stage four. So despite the pearls and particularly because of the overperforming control arm in the in the high population, I think we have strong confidence in making the recommendation, not just offering the option in this subset. So in the absence of a contraindication, I strongly recommend both chemotherapy followed by immunotherapy sequentially in this population. I completely agree. Mary, your recommendations in the PDL1 high population and Let's just say you have access yeah, to all I, I agree totally. Yeah, we've got uh, PDL1 high, we've got an approved drug. Um, and um, I think with follow up of Empower, uh, you know, we could argue that again, overall, uh, there's more positivity than just the PDL1 high. So, um, but my, my approved and funded uh, treatment is chemotherapy followed by PDL1 atezolizumab in the PDL1 highs. Yes. Now, We're what about, and what about for the PDL1 low subset, Mary? And let's assume you have access to any of the FDA approved drugs. Uh, I will, uh, and first of all, I'll include stage 1B greater than four centimeters. And all I can say is now I will have a choice for the high PDL ones, uh, the 50% and greater. I will have a choice of two drugs. And for the PDL lows, I will uh, have approval for with Pembro. And I will offer, discuss all that with my patients, but I certainly will be open to offer it. I will, though, still give chemotherapy. 
and uh, for all the reasons that the PEARLS data supports this and um, the uh, MPAR 010 mandated it. So I will also continue with chemotherapy. And Jamie, what about your recommendations for the resected PDL1 low population? Yeah, just to, to clarify a bit on, on the stage point. Um, so with the eighth edition staging, all of these folks uh, in both studies would be stage two for um, four centimeters or greater. I think in the PDL1 low subset that I am absolutely hearing Mary's enthusiasm here. And I think as we move forward and see more data, perhaps my mantra in clinic will shift, but I'm still taking these on a case-by-case basis. This is a patient population where I will discuss and perhaps offer adjuvant immunotherapy, however, still look very strongly for contraindications as uh, the PEARLS data subset still don't make a ton of sense to me. So um, a place to offer, but not twist arms as we have historically have had to do with chemotherapy in our lung cancer patients. And, um, you know, off study, I know that you're involved in several different trials, but off study, how are you approaching PDL1 negative after surgery? And so we haven't had the opportunity until just last week to even think about immunotherapy. So I imagine I'll approach this population similarly to PDL1 low, in which if they have any sort of contraindication, I'm not going to be enthusiastic about the recommendation for adjuvant immunotherapy. However, if they have NGS done and they are clearly driver negative or perhaps have a smoking signature, which could enrich for benefit to a checkpoint inhibitor, um, these drugs are now in the clinic. So we have an additional opportunity for these patients. And I hear Mary loud and clear about moving the bar and improving medians. However, some of these patients were cured by surgery alone. So I think we're going to have to think about toxicity and quality of life. And as she said, move towards those next generation duration of therapy questions. And Mary, for completeness, I assume your approach to PDL1 negative would be the same as PDL1 low? Yes, yeah, so they were included in the trial. And uh, if the approval comes, then the approval's there. And I still, you know, a, a true PDL1 negative, uh, repeat testing, repeated on a different piece of tissue. So no, the approval's there. And if it's there and, and the funding's there, I, I will use it. It won't worry me. Of course, you know, all of these treatments are all about managing patients' toxicities, their underlying uh, profile, because, of course, giving people adjuvant therapy that gives a permanent immune toxicity, whether it be hypothyroidism, patients don't like taking tablets for light, a chronic relapse in colitis is not something you want to give a cured lung cancer patient uh, for a few years. So, you know, toxicity uh, is, of course, key. But, you know, the, the, that was all documented in the trial. We know what we're dealing with and we know how to manage it. But um, we still have to accept, you know, that there's a potential benefit for them. Jamie, we um, everyone here has talked about chemotherapy as part of our accepted standard approach. Can I ask, uh, just for details, what regimen are you using in your practice at Memorial? Sure. Uh, I try as best I can to stick with the data for cisplatin. Cisplatin was historically studied with drugs we don't generally use anymore in the United States, such as vinorelvine. However, we've moved towards other cisplatin-based doublets, either cisplatin and pemetrexid or cisplatin and docetaxel, depending on histology. 
for patients who are not fit for cisplatin, which is an increasing percentage of our population, I do use and offer carboplatin, whether that's with pemetrexid, paclitaxel, or gemcitabine, perhaps. Very rarely are we using cisplatin and venerelbine. And and Mary, any difference in your practice? Yeah, uh, it, it is slightly different. I mean, I'm carboplatin-based. I, I, I actually am convinced and I don't like the toxicity from cisplatinum. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's a good, great drug, but I think carbo is just as great and so much more palatable. So I, I, all my adjuvant practice is carboplatin-based. Um, I use venerelbin. I have access to pemetrexate, second drug. Uh, I, I tend not to use paclitaxel, uh, both historically. It wasn't the way it developed in, in, in Europe and um, hair loss and now slight quirks in the data again. Uh, I don't think they're that meaningful, but no, I stick to a carboplatin base and I give either venerelbin or pemetrexate as a second drug. What about, um, Mary, what about radiation? Any role for radiation after an R0 resection? Sorry, Stephen, you had to ask that question. So I'll just answer it. No. (laughs) Uh, Jamie, (laughs) what are your thoughts on radiation here? I find it amazing how different two academic clinicians can be in their opinions. Um, I unfortunately feel that the lung art study was not definitive. It was underpowered and at design, and then it was... um, the sample size was decreased due to poor enrollment. They used outdated radiation techniques and extended the field beyond the known uh, malignant adenopathy, therefore accounting for the toxicity scene. So I still think patients with N2 disease, especially if it's multi-station, deserve a consultation with a radiation oncologist. And if you were going to offer radiation in the post-operative setting, how would you time that up with immunotherapy? The way it was done in uh, EA 5142, which is the adjuvant study that um, I've had the honor of serving a study chair for, was after uh, the chemotherapy and with a month recovery before initiation of immunotherapy. Now, we've made the caveat a few times that this discussion was for driver negative non-small cell lung cancer. For EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer, we know that osimertinib is approved as an adjuvant therapy for three years. Jamie, today off study, what would your recommendation be if someone had a resected ALK or RET or ROS1 lung cancer? Would it be any different? It would. Uh, I think in the best case scenario, we'd find these patients pre-op and enroll them on a study. But of course, that's hard to do and the studies aren't universally available. Um, soon we'll have data from the ALENA study looking at adjuvant electinib versus chemo for resected ALK positive disease. However, no data forthcoming anytime soon for these other populations you bring up. So off study, I recommend chemo for all of these folks, and I don't recommend immunotherapy to date just based on extrapolations from the data in more advanced disease. TKI discussions definitely come up in clinics, especially at a tertiary referral center, and we discuss the data from the EGFR space, which is quite compelling. I would say I have treated those with ALK-positive disease because the drugs are available and well-tolerated. But for those with RET or ROS1 uh, positive disease, I think the toxicities need to be um, balanced with the lack of data for efficacy. So I have not been offering or even considering drugs in that patient population. Mary, what are your thoughts on driver positive non-small cell lung cancer? And by extension, is it routine to do broad molecular testing at NAHS uh, after resection? 
so yeah, I do think it's very important to do uh, the molecular testing in early stage um, because in a way it does help you make decisions uh, mostly on what you think the biological pathway is going to be for that patient. And I mean, the data on the adjuvant ozimertinib, where you've got like 85%, uh, the, the curve not even dropping out at three years, such a high potential cure rate is very, very, um, it's very encouraging. It's, it's wonderful progress we've made. And definitely, it really defines a super duper driver mutation. And um, the others then, even in advanced disease, maybe uh, the ALKs are as good, but the EGFR is way ahead, I do think. So, I, I mean, the ALK in itself, I think, is very interesting because it is one of the subgroups that was looked at in MPAR 010. And it's a very small number of patients, but that actually was one of the few um, subgroups that actually went over the line in terms of not getting a benefit. That same subgroup, again, in pearls with, again, small numbers, uh, did not have a negative uh, outcome. But I think we're puzzled with these subgroups. RET and ROS1 to me are not great, so I will just treat them in the normal way. And ALK, I will really think long and hard about um, offering them immunotherapy. Um, I don't know the right answer and I don't know the right thing to do. But EGFR mutations, as an easy one, definitely OZ is, uh, TKI is definitely the way forward for them, uh, not the immune therapy. Uh, in my opinion, but ALK, I'm, I'm perplexed with an ALK. Well, hopefully we'll have more data relatively soon. And there's so many more questions I want to ask, but we are at time for this episode. So I'm going to stop here and, and you know thank both of you for your insights today, but you know, also for being so generous with your time and for all your past and ongoing efforts in the field. Dr. Mary O'Brien. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Bye-bye. And Dr. Jamie Chaft. Thanks for having me, Stephen. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, IASLC.org, under Newsroom. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.IASLC.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 